William Seacott, CBE, is the founder of National Poetry Day and the Forward Prize. He is a sterling champion of libraries and works with the charity Civic to put libraries back at the heart of the community. In his quest to get poetry out of the poetry corner, he joined Nicky Gamble in the reading corner to talk about National Poetry Day and his book, The Poetry Pharmacy, Tried and True Prescriptions for the Heart, Mind and Soul. Welcome into the reading corner today. Hello, thank you very much for having me, Nikki. I'm very excited because I'm always excited when we get the opportunity to talk poetry. And as we're talking particularly about a book that's published for children, it makes sense really to start with your own childhood experience of poetry. Was it something that you discovered that you enjoyed early on? Actually, I can't remember poetry being in my life before the age of eight, but... In 1968, when I was eight, I won a Latin poetry reading prize at my boarding school, and I won a 10-shilling book token. And that was my first memory of of, of being good at anything. Mm. But actually, poetry became my friend, I think, at boarding school, because I was so miserable and lonely there. Mm. And um, because I discovered this connection with poetry, it stayed with me, and I carried on reading poetry and learning it off by heart almost as a sort of companionable thing to do and years later when I invented the pharmacy I realized as I look back on life that I've been kind of self-medicating I think is the you know the, the modern word for it using poetry to help me through quite difficult times. I'm interested to know whether the poetry that became your companion was poetry that was written for children what we might call children's poetry, or or whether you didn't really see those divisions? I, I, I didn't see the divisions, and I don't now, actually. Mm. I don't think there is such a thing as children's poetry. And, um, you know, often when people, when I'm talking um, to people about this new collection, and, and they say, because it's big format and filled with illustrations and so on, it's for children. And I, and I actually, all the way along, I've been thinking, yes, this is for children, but this is just as much for the adults reading to the children. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think poetry, perhaps more than any other genre, is something that can grow with you and you can access at all different kinds of levels. Um, I remember reading a lot of Ted Hughes to my classes when I was a primary teacher, knowing that they didn't take from it necessarily the same as I did, but it didn't matter. Yes. And I think to me, what really excited me about working with Emily um, who illustrated this this book, is how I was thinking all the way along that as grown-ups are reading these words, the vast majority of people who they're being read to won't be able to read the words themselves. So what's so extraordinary is to have found an illustrator who really understands poetry and brings these poems to life, mm. which will really in turn help the child understand what the words are saying. I, I, I just think she's an absolute genius, and I'm um, uh, in, in the joyous position of being able to collaborate with her. The most obvious question to ask would be how you think illustration, or Emily's illustration in particular, enhances the experience of reading the poetry. Uh, yes, I, 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 that's a very interesting question. I mean, in the past when I've been publishing poetry or anthologizing poetry, I, I've always been a bit suspicious of using imagery or even music or whatever to connect to poetry because I thought they'll get in the way, they'll confuse or distract. Um, but actually, what's 
so intriguing about Emily's work is, uh, as, as I've just intimated, she she really understands poetry and she knows how to bring a poem to life. And so uh, for children who are just listening to poetry, to have pictures to look at, to help them understand what's going on in the poem um, is transformational, I think. Let's move on to the poems themselves. And I have to say, I... I absolutely adore the selection of poems uh, obviously some very familiar in there but some new discoveries too which is always great now I wondered whether when you were going through the process of selection whether you drew on the same pool as you did for your other books or whether you had to perhaps cast your net more widely for this uh, definitely more widely um, you know, I'm sure that if I went through this book, there are half a dozen poems that I've used before in the pharmacy books, which I thought were so extraordinary and remarkable that children ought to benefit from them too. Um, funnily enough, the very shortest poem, the very shortest prescription I've ever used um, was written by a Persian poet 700 years ago called Hafez. And it's my my prescription for loneliness. And it, and it, and it goes like this. I wish I could show you, when you're lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. It's profound in its simplicity. And actually, there are a number of poems in uh, this collection. And often they are poems from other cultures that are short. And somehow they're very profound in in their simplicity. Yes. But I, I think I also felt that a child could hold on to them, both in memory and in, you know, in just in the present and, and find them very, very helpful, because I know adults do too. That's such an interesting idea, that idea of holding on to something, because you hold on to it for life, don't you? <laughs> well, as I said in the introduction, actually, of Everyone Sang, you know, for the children, because it's designed to be read to the children, that you'll find these little poems bit by bit by bit, if, if, you, if you have them read to you a lot, will just will be in your memory. And, and some of the longer poems you might have to repeat over and over again to be in your memory, but then they become friends for life. Mm. Uh, particularly if you learn poetry when you're a child, it really does stick. And one of the reasons I was very keen for poetry to be back on the curriculum or the learning of poetry back on the curriculum is a few years ago on National Poetry Day, we commissioned a study all about uh, personal identity and what it meant, what people thought when they were 60, 70, 80 years old made up their sense of self. And it was startling how many of them said, included in that, the poems they learned off by heart when they were tiny mm-hmm. and still remember today. Mm-hmm. And to, to have that evidence in a way of how important that is to people made me feel it, it's terribly important to make sure successive generations still do that. Mm. Anecdotally, uh, when my grandmother was 105 and in a care home, uh, the thing that she always did when we visited was recite Wordsworth's Daffodils. She learned that poem at school yeah. and the joy that it gave her to still know every single word of that. You know, it, it's deep, isn't it? <laughs> really, really powerful stuff. And I've done um, sessions with rooms full of uh, Alzheimer's or dementia sufferers. And it's a very odd experience because when you go and engage with them to begin with, they're there, but they're not there. And then you recite a poem which connects to them from their childhood and they're very, very present suddenly. And what's more, I've often 
had emails from you know their carers afterwards saying an hour later they were still all excitable about it um so rather like music i think um poetry can be extraordinarily powerful mm. So much that I want to unpick there, but I know I've got to get into the detail of this book. Um, And in Everyone Sang, um, you talk about this being a selection of poetry by the feelings it expresses rather than the when and the where it was written. And so we don't get dates and we don't get the country of origin, but we do have this collection that is organised in in four main sections. But before we get there, we have this poem that really is addressed to the adults who will be sharing the book uh, with young people. And I'd love to know a little bit about that poem. And it would be nice if you could read it for us. I will. I thought this was a a useful instruction in a way. And uh, in my introduction, I encouraged the children to make sure their parents read it. It's called Do Not Ask Your Children to Strive and it's by a poet called William Martin. Do not ask your children to strive for extraordinary lives. Such striving may seem admirable, but it is the way of foolishness. Help them instead to find the wonder and the marvel of an ordinary life. Show them the joy of tasting tomatoes, apples and pears. Show them how to cry when pets and people die. Show them the infinite pleasure in the touch of a hand and make the ordinary come alive for them. The extraordinary will take care of itself. Listening to you read that is a pleasure in itself. Some of the teachers or some adults, let's not say it's not just teachers, they get worried about poetry because they are anxious about reading it aloud. Yes. Yes, they're frightened of it. And, you know, I think one of the biggest problems, and I know how many people in your audience are teachers, I think one of the biggest problems people say about poetry is it's all very well till they're about 11 or 12, and then the P word goes wrong. And it's a terrible tragedy and travesty because poetry is our greatest cultural export to the world, and there's something about adolescence um, that turns people off poetry and then makes them frightened of it. And in a way, it puts a fearful responsibility on the poetry intermediaries in life, who are sort of librarians and booksellers and teachers. And I actually feel that the key to poetry is to read it aloud. Don't read poetry like a, a piece of fiction or a piece of journalism. You have to hear it. And even if you don't read it aloud aloud because you're on the bus, hear it in your head. And then you know, you'll begin to understand the extraordinary musicality and lyricism that's there. And actually, if, if you're at home in the evening or whatever, read the same poem a few nights running, and you'll find you get very different things from it. So it's not hard. Just try and swallow your fear and see if you can and practice perhaps before you read to your class or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this book is full of very easy poetry to read, Um, There's plenty of old-fashioned rhyming poetry, so you know about rhythm and rhyme, and that's not hard, and that's the kind of thing that children get their heads around. But most of all, be slow. Just let the words speak for themselves. There's a reason poetry is so concise, and therefore take plenty of time over it. Make sure people, or children in particular, have a chance to really, really think and hear it all. 
And as you say, there's so much in here that's not difficult to read aloud. It's not uh, making meaning opaque in any way. Um, I think that's what people sometimes get concerned about. And as we've heard, some of the most profound things can be said in the simplest of ways. Let's come on to the different sections. Section one is about poems to inspire you. I was very drawn to uh, this section. You've got, um, oh, that wonderful poem, Come to the Edge. Oh, my goodness me, that's amazing. Can you read that one for us? Of course I can. Of course I can. This is funny enough. This is a poem which was originally written by Apollinaire, a French poet, and uh, a British poet, Christopher Logue, translated and adapted it. And he was actually the poet that, um, if you've ever read Private Eye, was E.J. Thrib. Um, oh. He wrote this lovely little poems, and he was an extraordinary character. And I once asked him if he'd like to be one of the five judges of the Forward Prize, and he said, only if I can be the only judge. <laughs> But this is a poem that I prescribe for courage, actually, for people who, like the lion in, in The Wizard of Oz, have, have lost their courage and, and, you know, need to find their heart again. And um, it's beautifully illustrated in the book um, because Emily's uh, illustration is, is a, a parent bird in a nest with lots of little birds about to have that crucial first moment of flight. And it's called Come to the Edge. Come to the edge. We might fall. Come to the edge. It's too high. Come to the edge. And they came, and he pushed, and they flew. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And also Maya Angelou in there, that lovely poem, Life Doesn't Frighten Me. We've got John Maysfield, Sea Fever. Actually, one interesting observation when I was working with student teachers in the 1980s, 1990s, I'd often start our poetry course by asking them to remember snippets of poetry from childhood. But they would often cite Sea Fever. Really? Cargoes. Yes. And Thomas Hood's I Remember, I Remember. Yes. Along with Spike Milligan and um, The Owl and the Pussycat. Yes. But isn't it interesting, those three poems that I've just mentioned there, very strong in rhythm. Yes, rhythm and rhyme, you know, of which a lot of these poems in in the book have, are are very important. And they are the gateway, in a way. I often think that um, one of the problems for poetry and the P word, as I keep calling it, <laughs> is is that it's separated from um, song lyrics, rap music, and so forth. And you know, everybody who's young since you know 1990 onwards, uh, rap has been a very powerful influence. And rap is filled with rhythm and rhyme, but it's also filled with incredible poetry too. And if only people were able to frame them in the same way as the P word, then I, I think they'd be less intimidated by it all. Very interesting. Do you think that the feeling um, that we get from listening to a poem comes as much from its auditory quality and talking about a sort of emotional response to it as it does from the words and their meanings? Yes, I think probably true, because we've all heard poetry read very badly. And then you can't hear it at all, and you can't take it in at all. It's not easy to find people who will read poetry well, and I often say to people who are trying to learn how to do it, don't act it, don't get in the way of it. The key is to be, in a way, a cipher for 
what is there on the page. And the key, again, is to take your time. On to section two, poems to make you smile. So like you, I believe in the virtue of humour, but I also think it's very individual and difficult to predict what an individual will find funny. So I absolutely loved Spike Milligan, a baby sardine. Yes. But the Ning Nang Nong drives me to distraction. <laughs> I agree. I hope you notice I haven't put it in there. I hope in a way I've tried to ring the changes. There may be names like Spike Milligan you recognise, but the sardine poem may be not be the one that you knew. And plus, because of the nature of publishing, poetry anthologies in the past tended to be filled with poems by dead white men because they're out of copyright and therefore they don't cost the publisher any money to publish. And I was very keen, as was the publisher, to make a properly balanced, diverse poetry anthology with poetry from writers all over the world and um, as many women writers as men, if not more, and so forth. But of course, that that requires quite a lot more investment. And if you're adding Emily to the picture as well, you've got to put some serious investment in. With regard to humour, did you go for what makes you smile? Or did you have some sense of trying to imagine what others might find funny? Both. And thirdly, how Emily might interpret it. I think each time I was choosing the poems, I was thinking, first of all, Uh, how would this impact on feelings? Because feelings is what's driven my selection all the way along. But also, um, what is the potential for the illustration around it? So on to section three, poems to move you. And you describe this section as a, I love it, a hug through the page. That's quite poetic in itself. And I was drawn to a lot of poems in this section. Seamus Heaney's Scaffolding, and Imtiaz Dakar's Crab Apples, again, quite short poems that I seem to be drawn to there. But this is a this section is all about different kinds of emotions, isn't it? And this perhaps links most closely to your poetry pharmacy books. Well, I think they all do, but I but that's a very powerful section, I think. Um, as is actually the poems to calm and connect you. Um, I'm I'm really proud of the fact that when I'm feeling a bit fussed up, I open that section and two or three poems in, I'm I'm much calmer than I was before. I think that what began as a quite simple project became more complex in my head as COVID developed and the impact of COVID developed. And your audience will know more than anyone that there are millions of children out there who cannot remember life before COVID. And I think that they have suffered the most in this. And so one of the things I was thinking about in in these sections, and particularly in the poems to move you, is to see if it can help parents unlock a conversation with their children about how their children are feeling about things. Because children know that they feel, but they don't necessarily know how to articulate how they feel or what's really going on. So I'm hoping that these these poems will both be therapeutic for, for children and, and, and for the readers, but at the same time might also help stimulate conversations to, um, you know, to, to help people cope with what we've really been through. And it's, and it's been very, very hard indeed. As you say, articulating or even knowing yourself what emotions you're really experiencing, even as an adult, that can be quite hard, let alone as a child that's not necessarily developed the vocabulary to to talk about those emotions. So the poet poem really stands in 
for that. Obviously, in the um, section on poems to calm you, there is unsurprisingly a strong thread of poems about the natural world running through that. That's been important to us as well, hasn't it, over this period? Very much so. Um, I was lucky enough to spend my lockdown um, in in the countryside and every day you know the one thing we were all able to do as a family is to go out for a walk and it made me realize that for the first time in my life since I was a little boy um, I was able to um, walk every day in the countryside during May and June and um, there I was able to watch how spring and summer developed uh, on a daily basis and see the extraordinary transformation literally every day see how a plant uh, a flower a tree might be blossoming or evolving and so forth and it was it was rather wondrous in that section poems to calm you i mean you have to have gerard manley hopkins in there but there's a section of a poem from spring and i'm quite interested in this with children how what might sometimes be long or complex poems that actually you can take parts of them and read them, and that they they work on their own terms. There's little sections of poems. I'm so glad you said that because that's how I feel, and I suspect that 20, 30 years ago, people might have complained about taking a bit of a poem and thinking it was somehow inappropriate. But uh, if I could read you one tiny bit, which actually isn't from there, but boy, are you going to recognise this? Um, I'm going to read you six lines from a musical written by Oscar Hammerstein. And this is my uh, poetry prescription for loneliness and hopelessness. Walk on through the wind. Walk on through the rain. Though your dreams be tossed and blown, walk on, walk on with hope in your heart. And you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Really, uh, and as you say, you can just take these nuggets and they work so well. Um, yeah, and, and actually, I don't know whether you found this, but during lockdown, and pro- probably because of you know my interest in poetry, but my social media feeds were filled with poetry. People were sending small nuggets of poetry on Instagram and other social media to each other because we'd lost the ability to commune with each other. And, you know, maybe in a bigger sense, we've lost the ability because we no longer, you know, worship together on a Sunday or a Friday or whatever our our culture or, or, or our religion is. And it's almost as though the canon of poetry has become a kind of secular liturgy where we're able to find these passages from from texts, from poems, from all kinds of things, maybe even lyrics of a song, that express more elegantly than we can how we feel. And it gives us a sense of complicity with how we feel. And we makes you realize that makes us realize that we're not alone. Um, we're not mad. And and what's more if if that was written hundreds of years ago, we've always, human, humanity has always felt like this and always struggled with this. And therefore, it's incredibly consoling. Just as you've mentioned social media, do you think there's a sort of paradox here where it has led to some disconnect at some level, but also, you know, as you've said, it has enabled in some way poetry to flourish as well. 
Yes, uh, I think that's a perfect way of expressing it. I think it's paradoxical in two ways. One is that I think that social media has made people incredibly lonely. And it's a terrible irony that while we have so many more platforms of communication than we've ever had before, actually we're lonelier than ever. And when I travel around the country doing my poetry pharmacy and listen to maybe a thousand people's problems, loneliness was the top thing. The other side of the paradox is that um, poetry was mediated for us in a way by half a dozen middle-aged white men who were the poetry editors of the main poetry publishing companies and for decades they 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 chose what they liked and on the whole they all like the same kind of stuff and what's happened with social media is all kinds of poets have have, have put their own stuff out there and built their own followings and reversed how publishing happens so Rupi Kaur now has four million followers on Instagram and boy, is her publisher lucky um, because the publisher approached her because she had so many followers saying, can I publish your poetry? Uh, had she sent the stuff in in the first place to the publishing company, you know, she may not have even been looked at. Um, so in some ways, social media has allowed a whole different generation of poetic voices to come through. The B side of it all is I think it stopped us being able to feel part of communities um, in the human way that we used to. My last question is whether you see yourself putting together another collection. Is there something more to come from you and Emily? This has been conceived so much as a piece in itself, which hopefully would cover um, all the bases for children. And what's more, it took three years to create. It, it, it would be driven first and foremost by whether Emily had the space in her life to do. When I initially started the Poetry Pharmacy, then the two of them, the Poetry Pharmacy, the Poetry Pharmacy Returns, I'd always conceived in my head that, that they were part of a trilogy. And Penguin have just asked me to um, to make a third. So in a year or two's time, um, I hope part three will come out and that might complete that process. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to visit us in the reading corner today. I think I might need to rename it in the poetry corner today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Nikki. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.